Just think of me like your fitness coach. Like, I want to get the best out of you. Tell me where you want to get to and I'll help you get there. So really putting the ownership onto them. I'm not going to give you the assessment outcome. Like, I'll tell you where we could get to, but you tell me what feels right to you and then I'll back you up. But then if you pick there, don't complain that I push you. Hi, it's Holly Ransom here. Welcome one and all to Coffee Pods, Fuel Your Difference, a podcast for the change makers and the game changers. This podcast is built around a simple hypothesis. How long does it take to learn from someone's lifetime of experience? Coffee. So in the time it takes us to share a cup of coffee with our guests or for you to enjoy one as you listen along, we're going to tap into the lifetime of experience of some truly remarkable people who've driven significant change. I'm a big believer that success leaves clues. And be it putting an audacious idea into action, shifting a team culture, or even a country's for that matter, or using their influence to drive progress, all our guests have powerful insights, pragmatic tips, and passionate calls to action that can help each of us to fuel the positive difference we're all working to create in our lives, organisations, and communities. Get excited, coffee potters. Our guest this week is Jamie Engel, a man who spent 15 years in the animation and creative industries, credits to his name like Mars Attacks, Contact and Stormtroopers, before he decided to take his creative approach and apply it to education. Jamie now is a lecturer at the University of Sydney Business School at General Assembly and is the founder of two educational companies, Newtopia, which is an online education platform that helps you quickly get up to speed on subjects that interest you, and Future Worlds Challenge, which is a fast-paced seven-week course that empowers young learners in a completely different way. In this conversation, we talk about the application of creativity to leadership and to learning. We talk about what makes a great story. We talk about how it is we need to challenge the way that we're teaching and learning in order to empower ourselves for the future. Fabulous one for educators and a great one for leaders thinking about engaging messaging and future relevant skills. Enjoy, Jamie. Jamie Engel, I'm thrilled to have you on Coffee Pods. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. My pleasure. Thrilled to be here. Well, I've got to tell you, I've been really excited for this conversation because I, I feel like I'm talking to someone who's at the forefront of this fusion between creativity and education. And what I wanted to do to begin with, before we start getting into what you focus so much of your the recent part of your career on, which is really innovating and changing the way that we we teach and the way that we're encouraging people to learn, I wanted to go back and understand the origins of your own creative career. You spent 15 years in the movie industry as a 3D animator, including having titles like Mars Attack and Stormtroopers to your name. Uh, and you've been a special effects artist as well as a screenwriter. Yeah. How did... How did you start in that pathway? What drew you to the creative industries? My undergrad was architecture. So that was kind of my first love, as well as music. I did piano when I was younger. And um, when I graduated from architecture school, I moved out to San Francisco. And there weren't a lot of jobs. The economy was quite bad. So I ended up going into a place thinking if I learned AutoCAD, I could maybe get a job. So this is the 1990, 1991. And I ended up seeing this computer that was as big as a refrigerator. And I asked the guys, like, what does that do? And he said, come over here. And he showed me. And I just thought, oh, my God, that's so cool. Like, you can make a building, but then you can fly through the building. I thought, I don't even know what kind of job you get with that, but I want to learn that. That's way cooler. 
So I ended up just for, for months and months teaching myself this computer. All my friends were out partying and they'd be like, what are you doing? And I'd say, I'm doing 3D animation. And they're like, we don't know what you're talking about. And so I've always had through my life, I'm doing things that no one ever seems to know what I'm talking about until years later. And so I just kind of followed that thread of, of being interested in that. And, and that's how I fell into movies because I was kind of taught myself a skill that was right before Jurassic Park and before it became like a huge demand for anyone that could move a mouse and make a few pixels move. And um, a few other things happened. I ended up in LA at USC Film School and I had to take a prerequisite course in screenwriting. And I fell in love with screenwriting because I was sitting there and, and the guy, the teacher was explaining the structure to stories and to scripts is there's three acts and there's a beginning act, a middle act and, and the third act. And the first one is 25% and then 50% and then 25%. I'm listening to it thinking, that's like a building. That's like you have the base, you have the middle and you have the roof. And I thought, this is crazy. This is like architecture of emotions. And I got mm -hmm. totally fascinated with it. I thought, I want to write a film script. So I just set myself a goal writing that. And I fell into um, the work of Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey and mythology and realized there's this huge lineage to storytelling that's, that goes back into culture. And that also led me to the work of Carl Jung and psychology. And I fell all in love with that. And I, I kept on like stumbling into domains of like whole worlds of something like the world of psychology and the world of mythology. And there were lots of patterns I was seeing and I just kind of followed threads of interest and excitement. So that led me while I was doing 3D animation, I was just kind of teaching myself about storytelling and screenwriting and, and the structures and patterns to architect emotions. I love that. And I wanted to ask you on that because I feel like I could spend a whole conversation with you just delving into that topic of storytelling because there's so much in what you've just talked about there. I want to ask maybe what it was that surprised you in the journey of kind of learning all about culture and the role of stories and how you, how you architect them, as you've talked about. Was there, was there a particular nugget or moment where you went, wow, you know, I, I maybe didn't appreciate the power of that or the significance of making sure that component's there is so overwhelmingly important to be able to tell a good story? Well, I, I guess if we go back to the hero's journey and the work of Joseph Campbell and this pattern that, that he found in, in so many different cultures, mythologies, that was pretty much the same. So his book, The Hero of a Thousand Faces, is saying there's one hero story or one pattern, but it looks a thousand plus ways depending on the culture it's in. And there's also the female heroic journey and there's lots of variations. So it doesn't necessarily have to be totally biased to a male gender. It's kind of just there's the yang and the yin that mm -hmm. go together. And I guess what I got fascinated with back then and, and still am is that it comes from us. It comes from within us. So cultures that had never spoken to one another arrived at the same archetypes and the same patterns out of the subconscious. So that means it's in our blood. It's in our DNA. And I just thought that was epic to think that that just surfaces from within humans and that we can relate to something thousands of years old because it just speaks to the humanity in us. And I feel like as well, I mean, I'm thinking about you sort of really being the forefront of the animation movement because we look at what Pixar has really created. All of a sudden animation, as you said, you're a trendsetter in many ways for this industry that that developed with time. I feel like it's given a greater appreciation to storytelling again because maybe it looks more like it's pure childlike form and yet in no way is it limited to having appeal to children. 
but I feel like storytelling's had a renaissance because of what mm. animation sparked. Yeah, I suppose it has. I, I guess in my mind, I probably don't separate animated material and, and regular or not mm-hmm. regular animated material and non-animated because it's just storytelling. And I guess oh. it's different vehicles to just connect at different levels because obviously the Pixar can be just as appealing to adults. Like I watched the, what's the name of the emotion one? Inside Out. I, watched I that love on, that one. Yeah, That's brilliant. A few months ago. And you think the craft of the storytelling at Pixar is such a high bar that they always are conscious of appealing to adults and children. So it's multi-layered. I guess it's just, to me, it's just storytelling. And I, and I guess, you know, that, that's what it sort of excited me when I got into education. I started pondering, why isn't storytelling used in, in course design more? Like, I didn't see it very much. It seemed all oriented to the external outcomes and ticking boxes and less about the transformational journey. Because when you enter a course and you exit a course, you're a different person, hopefully. Mm. And and so it seems like the personal transformation. So in storytelling, there's the external plot and the internal transformation. And if if a story like let's say a big action thriller only deals with the external plot, it leaves you a bit unfulfilled if the characters don't change. So I was always my students like I really want to see a huge transformational shift in them in their view of themselves rather than just I learned a skill. It's more yeah, but that's a tool. How are you a different person? What did you learn about yourself going into yourself in the journey of this course? And it just seemed like, wow, we could leverage so much in education or the future of how education can be done, just having the layers of the different experiences in there, the outer experience, the plot of the course, and then the inner transformation of the person. And it's funny that you say that because one of the things I think since I've engaged, particularly with the arts and the creative realm myself that I've come to appreciate is the incredible capability that storytelling has to take us into an issue or an idea or a piece of content indirectly. And in doing so, harness so much more of uh, our brain, our senses, our, our capacity to engage than what happens if we're just pushing content on people in a really direct manner. Mm. Yeah, like I find the ancient Greek mythology and the Roman, probably more the Greek, so fascinating because you think here's this pantheon of gods and goddesses and they're all neurotic. And there's so many Greek myths that just show the craziness of the characters in it. And just because they're gods, it's not like they're perfect. It's more like all about the imperfections and how mm-hmm. humanity, our imperfections came to be. It's like the architects of how those different neuroses came into being. And you think, you know, that's the epicness of storytelling is it's the greatest teaching tool device ever because the story, I kind of describe it to my students, like the teaching bit that you want to learn is kind of maybe a bit like medicine and not that tasty. So the storytelling is like the really tasty candy that's wrapped around the medicine or the healing medicine, whatever it is, it's wrapping the data, the knowledge, the information, the wisdom. And the brain, it's like the brilliance of storytelling is the brain receives the story and it sticks a post-it note on your memory because of the emotions around the story. So if you get high emotions, any kind, your brain just sticks a bit of chemicals and you remember it. So it's the perfect way to increase memorization, to increase impact, 
The metaphors increase relevance. It, it allows the synapses of what you know to grow into what you don't know or what's new that you're learning. And it just lets you explore so much stuff in, like you say, an indirect way. I wanted to ask you about creativity as well, because I mean, you hear the line all the time and we're all born creative. Uh, and somewhere along the journey, I think either people feel like it gets it gets beaten out of them or they come to disassociate that term with themselves. And there's certain uh, industries that that word or that title is uniquely reserved for. I wanted to ask you about the notion of creativity and what you think. Is, is it is it schooling that, that beats us out of it, so to speak? Is it something we can learn and hone our capacity around? Because we have this very present conversation around at the moment about how important creativity is for the future. And I think a lot of people are going, oh, that's great, but I'm not a creative person or that's great, but I didn't learn how to do that. And they're struggling with that idea of, of how creativity might apply or come into their world. Yeah. Okay. That's really cool, Holly. So I have a really good story for that. When I started doing the sort of entrepreneurship course, that was it was less about being entrepreneurial. It was more about learning relevant life skills. And I just started making a course that I thought would deliver the kind of skills I thought was important and relevant and, and be more fun. And so I was teaching at a design college and I was teaching design students or people oriented around creativity that were comfortable in that world. But when we got to the section on business and finance, terrified. And it was so interesting because, and I tried to make it as simple as possible and relatable. And I said, look, we'll make it really fun. Like, don't be too worried. We'll get through it together. An interesting thing happened. So one of the students came back the next week and said, Jamie, you'll never believe it. You know, I was really worried about doing the finance. And this memory of when I was about seven or eight in school popped into my head this week. And a teacher had said to me, you'll never be good at math. Interesting. Wow. And I said, you get, they just cast a spell on you. Like, that's not real. She goes, I know that because I could do this. And now I'm really excited and I feel really empowered. So there's the creative type person that veered away from analytical stuff and math because they were told they would never be good at it. So you, I would imagine in that moment, you feel really judged and you're like, this is not fun and I'm not doing it. But then when I was teaching business students to be creative, to work on like their design of their prototype for an app or something, some of them came up and said, oh my God, I remember this time I drew something and my parent didn't like it. Like, you know, that doesn't look like a fire engine. <laughs> and so, so, so the business oriented student goes, well, I'm not going to draw anymore because I got really judged up and told that doesn't look right. So there's something wrong with me. So I'll just go into math because two plus two is four and you can't argue with that. And the creative person had some moment where someone said, you'll never be good at math. And it made me think that so much in our childhood, it's that moment that we were being curious or trying something. And, and it's funny now there's this whole big, you know, we should fail more and be free to fail. But we're not, when we get judged that very first time, there was no sense of being free to fail. There was a sense of there's something wrong or inadequate with me. And so I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's that moment that like our world shrinks and then we don't want to do the thing that we think we're going to get judged at. So what I'm hearing in that is we're all capable of being those things, but it's that, I guess someone's speaking into that and then that belief that that creates that, that stops us from seeing um, or associating ourselves with that. And therefore, by extension, I, I'm guessing, and I'm interested in your opinion on this because you've built these sort of courses and designed these learning programs, a huge part of our capacity to change our association with that word and to become creative or become someone that's comfortable with a new set of skills that we may not have previously thought was within our wheelhouse would depend on 
the kind of the nurturing environment or the environment in which is created for us to then learn that skill or be re-exposed to it so we can change our relationship with it. Would that be right? Yep. So you're totally right. So feeling psychologically safe is, is the crux of it. And what's so interesting is Google just did a study called the Aristotle study last year, and they wanted to find out why their best performing teams were the best performing teams. And they looked at, they looked at like the grade point averages of those people when they were in school, the grades they got, um, their gender, their background, like everything. And it just came down to one thing that the team felt psychologically safe, that each other knew that they had each other's back and that they wouldn't be judged. They wouldn't be like, there was no politics. Nobody was trying to bring them down. So they felt safe to show up and be authentically their full self and try stuff and knowing that it was safe to fail. And so that study, and there's also Amy Edmonston is a researcher and she has a great TED talk on that as well and found the same thing. So it's all, it's psychological safety is the key to it. And really, you know, I've tried this so much with my students, just, you know, I'll get them asking, how do I get a good grade in this class? And I'm like, mess up lots, like as much as you can, like fail heaps. And they're like, does not compute, does not compute. And I'm like, just try it. Like if you try and fail 10 times, rather than once, you'll probably do a lot better in this course. And then I have to back it up and I have to have them experience it. So usually I'll be the first one out making a fool of them so they trust it. And then they go, okay, it really is safe to do that because they're a little sus, like, no, but you'll, you'll, you'll still give me a bad grade if it doesn't like work, work some way. Because I keep saying there's no right answer. Just like in life, there is not a right answer. There's just ways to try stuff. And I feel that's a really great point because a lot of people talk about this idea of do the thing you're uncomfortable with or we've got to be prepared to take more risk. And uh, But I think you're right. In the absence of proven psychological safety, people go, yeah, right, or yeah, sure. Or the first time someone has a crack, that safety is removed from the situation because someone gets fired or reassigned or the funding gets pulled. or And so people go, well, hold on a minute, that doesn't seem like that's the case anymore, that that's the way that we're operating. How important is that role modeling and how do you structure the environment that encourages people to be comfortable with taking risks? Is there anything you've learned in your course design for how we can do a good job of that as leaders? Um, I, I think it's just like setting the company culture. Like there's a lot of talk now in, you know, people experimenting with more casual, authentic cultures and workplaces. A lot of startups certainly are talking about that. The future of work, including transparency, new structures like self-organizing businesses and flat businesses and holacracies and all of that kind of stuff. So I think the future of work and management styles and the future of education and teaching styles are just, they're just parallel. They're the same thing. So I think for a teacher or manager, you're moving into this role of being a coach and I think, you know, if I were someone's fitness coach, you know, they have to really trust me. They're going to trust. I'm going to give them the right instructions that they can trust. If I'm pushing them, it's because I believe that they're capable of more. It's not a punishment. It's not a severity for my enjoyment. It's like, no, no, I want to get more out of you. And so a lot of times I'll tell the students, you know, just think of me like your fitness coach. Like, I want to get the best out of you. Tell me where you want to get to and I'll help you get there. So really putting the ownership onto them. And it's like, you tell me, I'm not going to give you the assessment outcome. Like, I'll tell you where we could get to, but you tell me what feels right to you and then I'll back you up. So if you just want to get here, we'll go there. And if you want to get there, but then if you pick there, don't complain that I push you. 
Like mm-hmm. it'll hurt. And, but you'll feel good. It's like good hurt. Like after the, a really good workout at the gym. And I know you're really into the sports. So you, you get that. It's like, you know, there's an enjoyment of being pushed hard because Absolutely. you're counting on your coach to know what is pushing you hard and what will break you and what will break you. That's a good break versus like taking you out because it's injuring you. And to know that, and you trust your coach is coming from your best interest. And I think that's probably, I'm just thinking in the moment, you know, older management and older teaching is like, it's very, it's like that old school parental thing. Like you're going to get punished or rewarded, like binary, yeah, binary, where I think it's a totally, it, it's a full context shift. It's going, no, 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 we're, we're playing a different game. That's the old, that's that game. That's not this game. This game is where do you want to get to and how can I support you? So my role is to get obstacles out of your way so you can move faster. And that's the same if I'm, you know, doing a new type of facilitated management style versus a new type of coaching teaching style. It's like, I want to help you get to where you're going. And that's what excites me. So, so I leave the control more in their hands than in mine. And I think if they feel that that's the beginning of feeling safe, because it's like, well, you're in control. You just tell me what you want to do. And what I'm hearing you talk about there is, is much more relational and personalized than arguably approaches have been in, in either of those domains before. Yeah. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. It is relational and it's based on love Mm. and God, do I love my students. I just fall Mm -hmm. in love with them. Like I probably fall in love with them too much because I just adore them and I just want to see the best for them. And I think they feel that in the field of the room that they know after a few weeks, it's quite genuine and I'm not putting it on and that, you know, I get upset because I think they're capable of more. And And that's what I love is you're not holding love as mutually exclusive to pushing them. Because I feel like part of the conversation we have around the millennial generation, and I say this as a millennial, is that we we mollycoddled a generation somewhat. You know, they all got a medal for running in a race. We, we mm. kind of avoided the idea of winners and losers or letting people fall over and scrape their knee. And part of what we're now contending with is, well, how do we help this generation in, in life where we know that's going to happen because they haven't necessarily had had that resilience incrementally built into them by the way that we've parented and the way that we've taught and and managed them. Yeah. Okay. I haven't really made that connection, but you're right. Cause I usually, what I say to them, if I like get a bit bummed out cause they haven't kicked ass in the past week and I'll come in and I'll say it, I say like, I'm really upset. Like, not like you're in trouble. You're not in trouble, but I'm upset cause you're capable of so much more. Don't you realize that? Like, like, you know, I sometimes say like, I feel like Willy Wonka. I'm like, we got so much to get through in so little time. And it's like, we just wasted a week. Like I want, like, we got to get through this stuff. And there's so much I want to like transmit into your brain that I'm just kind of bummed because like, we're not keeping pace, but it's not like you're in trouble. It's just, you know, it's you're, you can do better. Like, don't you want to do better? And I think it's, it's loving them with honesty and Mm. authenticity and say, this is what's true. And sometimes I will be, I guess, quite honest saying, if you're saying you want to get here, you're failing against your own benchmark miserably. So we're not going to get there. So pick up the pace or adjust your expectations. But I'll be honest with you, like this doesn't cut it for where you're saying you want to be. I want to take you back for a second, if I can, to when you decided to make the pivot from being in the creative industries into education. And I'm intrigued to know, firstly, what your motivation was for doing that. Like what was the spark? I feel like there's got to be a, a... in ignition moment that really lit your passion to make that transition. But the second thing I'm really interested in is kind of the the fundamental insight that 
formed your perspective and your, cause you've got a very different approach. And I love that. That's part of what I've really enjoyed reading about uh, both of the organizations in the education space that you've established, um, Utopia and the Future Worlds Challenge is you're, you're talking about a different, a new type of, of social learning. You're talking about a new way of empowering young people coming through. What was the insight that set you on a different trajectory with education as well? So what got me into education, I didn't really plan that. That okay. was really, that was totally weird. So I'd been working on a, on a trilogy film script for like 15 years with a friend of mine. And I was trying everything to get that thing moving. So we'd written it, finished it, done eight drafts of it, very thorough. And then I was like, okay, now we have to go to the next stage of of seeing if we can get it produced. And a bunch of things happened, got great feedback on it. Then I tried to get a a grant, an innovation grant, and went and got a multi-platform diploma to learn about multi-platforms. So we could make it an interactive graphic novel and the iPad had just come out and I didn't get the grant. Then I tried again. And then I went and got a screen business diploma and it just wasn't, the door wasn't opening. And it was so weird because I thought I've, I've done everything right. And I've, I've been disciplined and I finished it and, and got all the way down and just found out we didn't get the grant like the third time. I was like, this is crazy. And I had gotten one phone call that was saying that door was not opening And I kid you not, one hour later, I got a phone call from this design college saying, would you like to be a teacher? And I was like, okay, that door's not open. Yeah, that one won't open. And this one is, choose. And this one, a request to be a teacher was like the most terrifying thing I could imagine. (laughs) So I said, yes. So it, it seems to always have worked out, just say yes to the really terrifying things. So Oh, it was funny too, because the reason they called, they'd heard me speak at um, Vivid Festival and I talked about all the things that didn't work out for me. And I couldn't believe a friend convinced me to do that. And and it went really well because it was just a funny thing. I thought that's going to be really embarrassing. So I said yes to that too. So it was a series of saying yes to things that really terrified me. So they wanted me to teach brand management. And I thought that's funny because I've never worked in a branding agency. (laughs) And I was like, I don't get it. They said, no, 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 just teach what you know. It's fine. I was like, okay, well, I can teach storytelling and storytelling is marketing and marketing is branding. So therefore I can probably make it up. So I told the students on the first day, I don't know what I'm doing. I've never taught. And, and I said, look, I can teach you storytelling, but I've never worked at a branding agent. They didn't care. They're like, okay, cool. You seem cool. So by the third week, it was just, I was in love. I, it was like putting on an old pair of jeans. And then I remembered my mom was a teacher in Harlem in the 1960s. So it's actually in my blood and I totally forgotten that. And I just, I just adored it. I thought it was amazing. So then, um, what happened as I got to know the students, I just absolutely adored them. I asked them about their hopes and dreams for the future and had lots of great chats with them and, and just started wondering how I could do a course experience that served them more, that was more relevant, had more stuff that would really empower them. And, and I started to realize I wanted to teach them to be trilingual and understand they were focused on design, but I wanted them to be literate in business and also technology. So I thought if they could be trilingual, they could do anything. And no matter how much the world changes, they'd be okay. And I like that definition have, of trilingual. I haven't heard that before. Yeah. 
So, so I just said, look, I just want you to have superpowers and be trilingual. And they were like, okay, cool. So I said, okay, we'll do a different kind of course. We'll just, just come in. There's no assessment, um, no lectures, just watch a bunch of talks, like Ted talks that I'll give you every week. I didn't, had never heard this term flipped learning. And I just said, just watch those. We'll come and discuss it. We'll roll up our sleeves together and just bring in something you're passionate about, like a business idea. And we'll just get to work. And it was great. And I had some students opening up things like a Shopify shop on week seven. It was like incredible. And so they were loving it. I was loving it. And then I just got more and more fascinated with how can I make really, really engaging courses? And what can I bring from my other domains like storytelling and personal transformation and put that in and make it like if I'm writing a course, it's like writing a movie or writing a novel, that it's a journey and it's an adventure. And I thought, I have all this great stuff to draw on. I just need to bring it into this domain. And um, yeah, that's kind of what happened. I, I love that you took that that flipped approach and you sought to, I'm a huge believer in that idea of seeking first to understand before you seek to be understood. And you, and you sat with your students and said, how can I enrich this for you? I'm, I'm interested because I'm imagining you know, school principals and HR managers and people who are listening to this. And I know they're in our audience going, oh my God, I'd have a conniption if one of my teachers turned up to me and went, you know what, um, forget assessment. We're going to throw out the rule book, you know, this, that, and the other, and completely kind of co-designed with the students or co-designed with um, the employees that they were seeking to design an experience for. I'm wondering advice you can give around how you can kind of hold that tension between not necessarily throwing everything out, but at the same time, not being complacent and seeing that as a barrier to being able to change anything. Because I think sometimes we're almost overly transfixed with, well, this is what the rule says, or this is what the curriculum mandates. And as a consequence, we actually never get out of the starting blocks with trying any of the sort of different approaches you've talked about. Yeah. I mean, I to- it was totally an act of rebellion because <laughs> I was really frustrated that I just thought there's so much more that could be taught to these students, to these humans. And some of it is just not in the course because no one is thinking about it. And I thought, why is that the boundary? What if we just threw out the boundary? And I went, look, my goal is to make you empowered whatever that looks like. And I want to do something that engages you. So, you know, the stuff, it was funny because again, I didn't plan this, but I kept on asking myself the question, like what would make them motivated? What would make them really curious? And it's like to be curious to learn is one of the greatest joys. Like I get so much joy from learning and I just wanted to transmit that and activate that and get it turned on because everyone innately loves to learn because when we're four, five, six years old before we get that judgment moment, we're just like, why is the sky blue? And what does this bark taste like? I'll put it in my mouth. And like, we're just testing everything. And we're naturally, and I don't say this in the business sense, but entrepreneurial, we're naturally explorers. We're naturally adventurers. We're naturally pioneers. That's all natural. And then it just slowly, we get conditioned into getting into a smaller box and a pathway and prescriptive and told, this is how you do it. And now we're in this world where everyone out in the real world is saying, we don't know what's happening. It's all changing so fast. So if that's the case in the real world, then it seems weird that in the school system, we're still talking like we know how to do it. Because it's bigger mess out in the real world in the big corporates because everyone's freaking out. We got the AI thing. We got technology speeding up. We'll have robotics coming onto the scene and autonomous cars and all these things. And so nobody knows what is ahead. So the more you can bring that 
pioneering spirit or that venturing spirit or that creative spirit online from when we were little kids, the more you'll be okay. So I think I was just innately trying to go, how do I turn that back on in them? And how do I do it quickly? So I, I just thought, well, if I let them work on something they're into, that they're passionate, personally passionate about, that should help. That should do one thing. And if I give them a lot of freedom, like, look, let's just write the rules together. So you're, you're involved. You've co-written it with me. It's not, not me telling you how to do it. We're collaborating. I'm your coach. You want to get here. I'll help you do it. What's exciting to you? So that's the freedom bit. And then there just has to be a bit of structure. So it's not a total free-for-all. So I'm going, okay, autonomy, freedom, purpose, what you're passionate about and structure. And then I stumble on this Dan Pink TED talk and he's saying they did all these tests and autonomy, purpose, and mastery are the three things that create the right environment for motivation. That if people have freedom, they have a structure to follow and they're doing it from their heart, it should work fine. So I started to realize I was playing a different game than their game. I was trying to play the game. How quickly can I get you from extrinsic motivation to intrinsic motivation? Mm. Can I shorten that by weeks? Can I get you down? Like, can I get you to intrinsic motivation in like three weeks? That would be amazing. And, you know, it started at about six. And then I've, I keep changing the course and trying things to go, how do I get it happening quicker and quicker and quicker and quicker? And so I, I guess that is taking, again, that kind of more entrepreneurial approach to course design or school design going, look, it's lean startup. We just got to try a bunch of stuff and not be attached to how we think we know how to do it. And so I just, and it was almost good. I hadn't been in education because I kind of didn't know what I was doing. And I was just going on hunches and going on intuition and just trying stuff. And so like every term I would ask them just getting user feedback for a, a startup thing, what worked, what didn't, what would you do better? And I was really unattached. And I said, you can tell me anything. You can tell me you hated it. Like, I don't care. And they would just come back and I'd get feedback and make a few adjustments and try to make it better. And uh, they've been my collaborators for years now. All of the students I've had, they've been awesome. And just always wanting to contribute and say, look, your contribution at the end of this will help the next group to make it a better course. And being really unattached to being right, just going... I'm just trying stuff. I'm doing it in front of your face. I'm experimenting. I'm falling on my face. Therefore, feel free to fall on yours. You won't get judged. It's totally groovy. I was just thinking that, that what you're talking about is really creating a more level playing field with your students because um, you're, I mean, we're, we're putting them in education environments where they're receiving feedback all the time and being told whether, you know, something was good or bad or had room for improvement or whatever it might be. Um, and to your point around psychological safety, if you're role modeling that, then um, there's a greater appetite and preparedness from their end to go, oh, well, okay, it didn't look that bad and you took the feedback and you know, uh, it seemed okay with it. So maybe I can do that and be more open to having a go at things myself. Yeah, totally. Totally. I totally put myself level with them. I'm like, we're both the same. We're doing this together. And is that getting to the heart? I, I liked the phrase that I was reading when I was uh, looking at Newtopia online, this idea of social learning. I wanted to unpack a little bit what, what mm. you meant by that and what you're pioneering there. So, okay. So that was a different experiment. So I guess what we've been talking about is the experiments I've been trying at the level of course or program design. Yep. So kind of in my mind, I see it like there's platform design, which is the digital bit and the, the software bit. Uh, the technology bit. Then there's course design, which is more the storytelling, user experience design, personal transformation experience, experience design. And then there's the facilitation style. And so networks of facilitators or people. So it's like, it's the platforms, the programs, and the people. Gotcha. So, so on the platform, 
I, I was, what was happening is, um, cause I'm just like such an avid learner. I, I would always be like on, <laughs> it's embarrassing to say, but spending, you know, whole weekends watching conferences on YouTube and stuff. And just, that was like the funnest thing I could imagine I doing. It. And so I'd be doing that, just teaching myself whatever I needed to learn next. So when I got to wanting to learn software development, I'd be watching product management conferences, which were awesome. Like I found the most incredible people telling incredible stories, super creative, coming to insights and hunches that I found fascinating. And it made me feel a little more normal actually watching the, the speakers at these conferences. So I'd be learning stuff and I'd get a lot of students and even colleagues saying, where do you find all this good stuff? And I was like, I don't understand what you mean. And I'd get it asked more and more and more. And at the same time, I was giving the students the list of 10 things to watch during the week. So this ugly email with a bunch of links. And, and then it dawned on me, oh, I'm getting asked if you knew how to do interior design, I wanted to renovate my house. And I don't know where to find any of the tile and tapware. I go, hey, Holly, what's the best place to get the best tile and tapware? And you'd be like, oh, it's Mike's shop down the street. I was like, oh, great. You just saved me three months of looking for it. So I realized, oh, because I'm just on the web so much, knowing what to look up, finding these little pockets of good talks and conferences, I kind of knew where the good shops were. And so I thought, well, God, that's a bit like Spotify. Maybe I could build Spotify for knowledge. And so that was what I set out to do with Newtopia is how could I make something that's like the normal products out there like Pinterest and Spotify to just easily make a place where everyone could social bookmark, but then everyone could share what they're finding and it could be organized by the platform, by the software with algorithms based on what you're liking, just like a lot of the platforms out there, but just applying that to knowledge and going, that's a shared library of a community of people like a design college, all finding stuff related to design. And you think that's this unbelievable resource of curating and crowdsourcing the best curated content from around the web. Because everyone's looking for like 3D printing and graphic design and the best TED Talks and the best conferences. And everyone's just finding it for everybody. It just saves everybody time. So it's like getting the whole community to build the library. And then with that, we could then take some of that content and build the courses. And then it would look really attractive and would be an email with a bunch of links like I was doing. So I was just trying to build the product I wanted to use. And it just made sense to me if Facebook and Pinterest and Spotify, if those design patterns of making a playlist or a board, pinning stuff, sharing it with your friends, if that works and it's, it's getting very normal, the design patterns, it should just work over here. But for slightly different use case to save time and and streamline learning. And so people said, oh, you're making a learning management system. And then I thought about it a little bit and went, I don't know if I want to manage anybody's learning. That sounds... (laughs) Because that phrase in itself sounds old school, doesn't it? Yeah. And so I thought, no, 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 I'm building a curiosity creation machine. That sounds a little more... I like that. So I just want to create curiosity and get people like, you know, like, I love the Spotify Discovery channel because they just send me more of stuff that I'll probably like, or even the Amazon Books recommendations are really, I always find them to be a value add, not really a, a marketing thing. So, so I just looked at all the things I liked using and went, how could I just throw that in a blender and make something that'll kind of work? And I just hacked my way through and I'm still hacking my way through, figuring out how to make the best product possible for inducing curiosity. 
and turning people's curiosity on. I love that. That's awesome. I wanted to ask on education, what do you think we talk about too much when it comes to education conversations right now? And and that can be in a work context as much as it might be in a school or university. And what do you think we're not talking about enough? Ooh, that's a good question. I want to give you a considered answer. Um, Okay. I I know what I would say. I think uh, wisdom. I think we're living in a world of infinite or feels like infinite overabundance of data and information. Like it's too much. Like you think it's so weird because we went from pre-printing press where a monk would copy an illuminated manuscript and take years to copy one book. And it was the rarest thing on earth to the printing press. And then books became more mainstream to now it's tipped and we have too much, too many things, right? And we have access to everything. So let's say Harvard's library is not exclusive. In fact, the global net has much more in it than Harvard's library. So it's flipped that there's more outside the university than inside. Now it's just finding it. So the discovery and finding it is the curation is more important. So I don't hear a lot around the curating the most valuable stuff. And then beyond that, I don't hear anything around wisdom. And whilst I don't want to define wisdom because I think that means different things to different people, it's almost like the intuitive wisdom that's within us, if we can tune into ourselves, is probably the most valuable thing of all. Like a friend of mine just said recently, Sky said recently, you know, this here is the most incredible technology of all. Our bodies and our minds. We can't make one of these. And yet we're all obsessed as a culture with these objects that are very powerful. Like they're like magic. You know, if you showed this to someone 80 years ago, they'd go, this is like magic. You wouldn't believe this like piece of glass that plays stuff and (laughs) sounds come out, you know, it's like mirror. And so we're so obsessed out there that we forget the wisdom. And I think it's in a lot of indigenous cultures that I'd love to see us going more towards that, that it's like the wisdom to realize we have to take care of ourselves. And I struggle with that and nurture ourselves, the wisdom to give time for our relationships and love in this world. Like we can have all the knowledge and all the things, but if we don't have the connection, that's sort of like the most important thing. So yeah, I probably don't hear that as much as about how do I learn more and faster And I don't really think that's the goal. It's not to cram more in. It's to actually create more space to have more time. Like, like I think with some things I've read about people looking for platforms that can automate learning, automate teaching, save time so we don't need the teacher as much. I'm thinking that, in my opinion, is really misguided. I'm imagining it's great to have a platform to automate things so the teacher or the facilitator or the coach has more time to be with Mm. the student and to connect and we have more time for the social and emotional stuff so that just things that could be repetitious and automated can be to create more time for the human bit. So I just think that's the focus for me is the human bit. I love that. I think that's a really, really powerful reflection on, on where we're at and where we need to probably reposition our focus to. 
I have two final questions I like to ask all my guests uh, before we wrap up that I'd love to get your input on. The first is for those who are listening to this conversation and wanting mm-hmm. to take forward the ideas you've um, you've put into play around education and taking a new approach and how you can get um, how you can create that appetite for lifelong learning. What's the best bit of advice you could give people about how to take a first step towards doing that? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Just just sit with yourself and use your own body as a compass and feel for where you feel excitement. Excitement and fear are kind of just like on a roller coaster. Roller coaster is exciting, but the terror of it is what excites you. So terror and excitement, terror is not always like being scared, like something bad is going to happen. It's just fear of the unknown. So it could be excitement. It could be slight fear, but I would listen or feel for what excites you and follow that. That's the compass reading, like follow what excites you. And if you get things that scare you, probably say yes to it. Yeah, I like that. That was consistent through your own experience without a doubt. You're being prepared to to do the things and say yes to the things that that make you a little bit afraid. I finally wanted to ask you, for those who are listening, what's the call to action you'd like to leave them with? Oh, gosh. Um, I know. So I think for me, just in the last... 12 months, the the biggest thing that's reoriented me is giving time to love myself, that I've had so much attention out there. And it's still, I find it really challenging. And it almost sounds like an odd thing to say, but I started experiencing the value of taking time out and and really taking time to love myself, be accepting, self-accepting. Because I think all of us, certainly myself, we've so highly critical. I can be so highly critical of myself and realizing that's not really great. <laughs> and, and so it's actually spending time actively thinking and saying nice things to oneself and really being supportive of oneself, loving oneself, even if you're struggling and not being critical, like saying a negative thing and giving you yourself space and time for your humanity and to be human and to try stuff and not be perfect and not do things in your viewpoint being right or wrong and, and just going easy on oneself and then following what excites you. So I think that's the call to action, but definitely, yeah, time being good to oneself. It's almost creating that psychological safety for yourself, like self-generating that. Ah, I never connected that dot. That's perfect, Holly. I was just thinking about what you were talking about. In many ways, it's sort of saying I don't need to rely on my extrinsic environment to create that. I can actually think about catching my unconscious thoughts and positively reframing them and and trying to do the best of my ability to preset that before the world interacts with me. That was great. (laughs) That was really good. I I hadn't connected that dot. You're right. It's creating psychological safety for oneself. Yeah. I, I love that idea because I don't think of any of the, the people we've spoken to yet that there's been, it's, it's always that outward piece. It's how do I, to your point, how do I take the idea and run harder and faster or more successfully? And that notion of, of starting, you've got to start where you are and that starts with you before I can go out and do anything, I think is a really, really powerful one. And I'm sure one that will resonate with a lot of people who are listening. So thank you, Jamie, not only for that, but for your openness and preparedness to share throughout this conversation. I have so many notes that I've taken away from this that I really want to spend some time reflecting on. And I think for me, there's a lot in this conversation that I need to go away and unpack and apply and have further conversations about. And I'm really grateful 
to you for prompting so much new thinking and, and challenging thinking in me. Um, so I appreciate your time on behalf of all of our listeners. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Holly. Really, really fun. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organization, or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback, shoot me a tweet at Holly Ransom, leave a review for this coffee pod, or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me.